Hey, this is Eric, and you're listening to the Story Church Podcast. Our podcast features audio from Sunday mornings at Story Church in Peru, Indiana, a community on the mission of connecting people's story to God's story. If you'd like to connect with us further, check out storyperu.com. Our hope is that today's episode helps you take your next step on your faith journey. We are in part three of this series, The Bible for Grownups, and uh, I don't know if you felt this the past few weeks, if you've been with us, but this series might feel a little uh, more technical, maybe even a little more Bible nerdy than what we typically do. There's a lot of history I feel like I'm throwing at you as we walk through it, but it's really an important uh, conversation for us to have because as we said on week one of this series, uh, we're in a moment in time, although I really think this has been true for all time, but especially right now, we need to learn how to be thoughtful Christians. We need to learn how to carry our faith that doesn't require us like turning off our brains and that actually gives us the ability to wrestle with some of the difficult and complicated questions that people are asking in our culture and even within the church, uh, specifically as it relates to the Bible. And what we've said throughout this series is that the Bible is not simple by any means. Faith can be simple, uh, but the Bible is a complex, rich library of ancient documents that were compiled over years and years and years for all sorts of different reasons. And so it's challenging for us if we pick it up and we just try and engage with it on our terms. Rather, what we've been saying throughout this series is we have to learn to engage with the Bible on its terms. Rather than bringing our modern assumptions and all the stuff that we think maybe the text says, we have to learn how to actually read it and understand it. And another reason that this series is a big deal is that while many people may know some Bible stories, very few people actually know the story of the Bible. Maybe for you, you grew up in church and you can recite some of those Bible stories that you learned along the way. You probably know a lot of them. Or, or maybe you didn't grow up in church, but you learned enough Bible stories along the way to decide that you didn't believe what was in the Bible because it all sounded fantastic or out there. Or how could that possibly be real in our world that's like ruled by science and laws and all the stuff we learned in school? Uh, maybe for you, like you grew up in church with Bible stories, but then as you grew up, like that video showed us, like you kind of grew out of faith because your faith didn't seem to grow with some of the new information that you learned along the way. And you thought like, wait a minute, that stuff couldn't have happened. But whatever it may be, uh, having an understanding of the story of the Bible and how we actually got the Bible is a big deal in our culture and as it relates to our personal faith. Because as we've said uh, throughout this series, it's the understanding how we got the Bible is almost as important as the story in the Bible. That understanding the context around it is actually uh, almost as important as understanding what's inside of it. Because if you don't understand how we got the Bible, it's easy to dismiss and to discount the stories that are actually in it. But what we've said is that the backstory to how the Bible was put together actually sheds light on the bigger story that's contained within it. And and it's an especially big deal for us to get this right uh, with the next part of the story that we're going to look at today. And uh, specifically, we're going to look today at what we know as the Old Testament. And depending on your background in church, depending on uh, maybe your relationship to the Bible or maybe what you've heard uh, culturally, people have a complicated relationship specifically with the Old Testament, with this collection of ancient documents that's at the very front half of the Bible. Uh, For some of you, maybe you're like me and you had a point as you were growing up and trying to navigate your faith where you realized like God, as he's described in kind of the first half of the Bible, seems like he woke up a little grumpy. Like he just seems angry and kind of temperamental at times. Like it's hard to follow like what God is up to you. And then you get to the New Testament, which we'll cover that later. You get to that and it's like Jesus is all peace and love and everything kind of calms down. And so maybe for you, you've noticed that and you're like, how does that all work together? Like 
How do I make sense of angry Father God at the beginning and then loving, peaceful Son, Jesus, in the New Testament? We're going to talk about that a little bit, but what we're tempted to often do as it relates to the Old Testament is many times, whether it's a pastor or just a person who's trying to follow Jesus, we're tempted to pick and choose the pieces of the Old Testament that make sense to us, the pieces of the Old Testament that maybe fit within the context of the story of Jesus, the stuff that like makes sense, and then we just kind of ignore the rest of it, or we just don't talk about it. We just pretend it's not there. Sometimes we're tempted to like sand the rough edges off of the Old Testament to try and make it all work together. And what we're going to talk about today is how that's actually not the best approach for engaging uh, with this collection of stories and this collection of documents. But we'll get there in just a second. Throughout this series, uh, another thing that we've acknowledged is this, that the way that we got our Bibles is not the way that the world got the Bible. That all of us, uh, if you were handed a Bible, maybe as a child or maybe even as an adult, if you uh, started a relationship with Jesus, maybe your Bible wasn't handed to you, it was just on your smartphone. But whatever that looks like, when we received the Bible, it was all chaptered and versed and it had maps in the back and there were all these resources together and it was collected as one book, one document. But what we're talking about in this series is how the world got the Bible. And the world didn't get the Bible in one lump setting just like that. It wasn't all bound together, at least not initially. And uh, something that we highlighted last week is that Jesus actually didn't write the Bible. He didn't like pen the words. Uh, it's not like the heavenly hand reached down and forced Paul to like write certain things or anything like that. But if it wasn't for Jesus, there wouldn't be a Bible. And here's what I mean by that. If it wasn't for Jesus's resurrection, there would be no Bible. The story of the Bible doesn't actually start in Genesis. The story of the Bible starts with Jesus, and it starts with his resurrection. And so to recap where we've been so far, uh, what we've said is that the story of the Bible actually begins when Jesus's tomb was found empty, that Jesus was crucified and he was buried. But uh, one day on Easter Sunday, that very first Easter, some of Jesus's first followers came to the tomb and they found that it was empty. And, and eventually they realized that he was actually alive. He appeared to them and, and he did these amazing things. And so then the word started to spread throughout Judea and the region of Galilee and thousands of Jewish people in the very area where Jesus lived and did his ministry suddenly started to believe uh, that Jesus was their savior that Jesus was alive and that he really was who he said he was, that the claims that he made about himself were true because he conquered death. And so because of that, suddenly something became true that wasn't true before. People became interested in documenting and understanding the life of Jesus. And it's really important that we get this because like, if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, if he had just been crucified, we likely wouldn't know much about Jesus. He would be a footnote in human history if we studied him at all because he would just be another failed first century wannabe Jewish Messiah who was put down by Rome and that's the end of the story. But because Jesus was alive, suddenly people were interested in documenting the life and the words and the works of Jesus, which is why I say that the Bible and the story of the Bible actually begins at the resurrection because eventually uh, what happened is the Apostle Paul, who we'll talk about even more uh, next week as we wrap things up, the Apostle Paul and some other people, they left Jerusalem as well. They left the region of Judea where all of Jesus' life had happened and they started going to major port cities in the Mediterranean basin and they started sharing about the story of Jesus and the fact that God had done something in the world through his son and had raised him up from the dead to punctuate the things that Jesus claimed about himself and what he said about the world. And eventually, as the word continued to spread, as time continued to go on, people realized, hey, we need to document this story. 
We actually need to write it down. Like, Peter's not getting any younger. Uh, it, Paul wasn't even there for any of it. Like, <laughs> we need to write this down, and we need to understand it along the way. And so people started writing these documents that documented the life of Jesus. We know them today as the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're about in the middle of the Bible. And in fact, Luke, in his Gospel, tells us that many people tried to t- write down an account of Jesus' life. And that's a remarkable thing in history, that many people documented this one man's life and the events surrounding it. And so on week one, we talked about how this is where we get the Gospels. Uh, These two Greek men and two Jewish men who wrote accounts of Jesus' life for specific audiences and for a specific purpose. And then eventually, those letters or those documents started to circulate around the church, and it was an exciting thing if somebody showed up uh, in your community and they had a fragment of Matthew's gospel or a fragment of John's gospel, and they would read them together. And eventually, uh, as the Apostle Paul left the region of Judea and Galilee, and he started to spread the word about Jesus throughout the Mediterranean basin, eventually non-Jewish people started getting in on the story of Jesus. They started becoming Christians as well. And this is where we kind of picked things up last time. Uh, We said that when Gentiles became enamored with a specific Jew, Jesus, that when Gentiles became enamored with this particular Jew, then they also became enamored with the sacred texts of the Jews. And for the first time, they started exploring uh, what we know as the Hebrew Bible. Uh, We started exploring uh, what Jesus and people in the first century would have called the law and the prophets. They started exploring these texts that had been uh, the basis of Jewish faith and told the story of the Hebrew people. And and so these Gentile Christians early on, like in the late first century, early second century, uh, they started to study these Jewish scriptures and then eventually they started to actually embrace them as their own. They started to embrace them as their own, but here is where the storyline's about to get a little complicated, okay? Because these Gentile Christians, they started exploring the Jewish scriptures but they did not embrace the Hebrew Bible or the Jewish Bible as Jewish scripture. Okay, they didn't revere it because of its own original context or because of their Jewish faith, but rather they embraced the law and the prophets as Christian scripture. They embraced the law and the prophets as Christian scripture because while they were interested in the Jewish scriptures because they were interested in Jesus, they weren't in the least bit interested in Jewish religion. So they weren't in the least bit interested in the practices or, or even the history or the culture of the Jewish people. And, and there's a lot of different reasons for that. Uh, three really quick ones is at this moment in history around uh, the end of the first century, beginning of the second, uh, there were a couple of things happening. One is the Jewish temple had been destroyed at this point. And so Judaism was kind of figuring out a new way of being without their sacred place of worship. They started what's known as rabbinic Judaism, and they were kind of figuring out what that looks like. So Judaism itself was kind of disrupted in this moment. Uh, Another thing that kept these Gentile Christians from having interest in practicing Jewish faith is the Jewish people in that day often sided with Rome against the Christians. It was kind of this political tactic that they would do, and uh, the Roman government didn't like the Christians because Christians didn't call Caesar Lord, and they didn't worship the gods, and so sometimes the Jewish people would join along with the Romans and say, yeah, look at this weird Jewish cult. Like, we're not with them. They're even taking our scriptures, and they're not doing our practices, so yeah, you should put them down, and so the Christians weren't all that interested in in learning the practices of ancient Jewish people in that time, Uh, but probably greater than all of that is just historically Gentile people, non-Jewish people in the ancient world weren't all that interested in engaging with Jewish people at all because Jewish people, by practice, kept themselves separate. It's actually what they believed God had commanded them to do, and so they did things that were countercultural. They didn't work one day of the week, 
and people didn't understand that. It didn't make sense to them. Uh, they would eat different food than everyone else, so they wouldn't interact with one another. They had these rules and regulations about who could marry who and, and what that looked like. And uh, if nothing else, all of the Gentile men were not particularly interested in the practice of circumcision, which is what initiated a person in being a part of the Jewish people. And so they weren't all that interested in participating. I'll let you figure out why if you don't know already. But uh, they didn't really want to be Jewish. They didn't want to practice the Jewish faiths. And consequently, these Gentile Christians took the Jewish scriptures, but they didn't take the Jewish religion. But rather, they started to read through the Hebrew Bible or the Jewish scriptures through a lens that was Christological. That's a big word if you want to kind of impress your friends. But what it means is they were looking for Jesus in the text. They were going to these Jewish scriptures, and they were looking for where they could find Jesus. And as they looked for him, they started finding him everywhere. And in fact, they found him in places that he initially wasn't, if that makes sense. And so the Jewish people, like, they were all upset because these Gentile Christians were coming in. They were reading the Hebrew scriptures. They didn't even know Hebrew, right? But they're translating it. They're figuring out. And they're deciding that all these texts are about Jesus that historically hadn't been about Jesus. And so they were confused because they're like, hey, you're damaging the text. Like, you're damaging our faith. It would be like if somebody came in and said, the Bible, for us, says things other than what we believe that it says. It would be a tension-filled moment. Uh, But for the first century Christians, these Gentile Christians, they were embracing Jewish text but rejecting the Jewish interpretation of that text And many of the church fathers, the leader of the church in the first and early second century, they essentially said, hey, look, you guys missed your own Messiah, right? Like, like you guys missed Jesus. He was here, and you interpreted it wrong. You didn't even understand your own prophets, so we aren't going to embrace your interpretation because we see Jesus, and we uh, understand him, and you guys missed your own Messiah. And so there's this tension that starts happening because there's Jewish believers, and then there's Christian or Gentile believers, And there's this tension between the two of them. And in fact, uh, this is at this moment when the Apostle Paul and and Peter, like all of the people who are on the scene when Jesus lived, they're gone. And the church is growing and the church is moving. And and something that's interesting to note in the midst of this tension is that actually in the book of Romans, if you read through it, there's a section where the Apostle Paul is really specific to some of these Gentile Christians. And he basically says to them, like, hey, don't get uppity, like, don't get cocky or arrogant because, like, like, don't have a bad attitude towards the Jewish people because if it wasn't for Jewish people, there would be no Messiah for you to embrace. And, and so he's speaking directly into this tension that started to exist. He started to warn the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world, to not separate themselves from the Jewish world and not to be critical of the Jewish people. And in spite of that, there was this conflict early on in the first and second century uh, surrounding the text. And, and what happened is essentially the early Christian church took these Jewish texts and then they baptized them and they Christianized them and they allegorized them. And and unfortunately, for the most part, they started to downplay and and maybe even ignore, but they certainly didn't teach the gritty story that the Hebrew scriptures, that the Hebrew Bible was always telling all along. They started to downplay the epic history of the Hebrew people. And, And that's a big deal for us because honestly, some of us still today continue to do that. As we look at the Old Testament and we try and find Jesus, sometimes we miss the point of what the Old Testament is actually capturing and actually documenting along the way. The Old Testament, as we know it, chronicles the story of God's people, and it captures God's redemptive, sequential activity in human history throughout the world. 
And so what we're going to do with our time together is I'm going to give you like a really quick walkthrough and overview of that story, the story of how God moved through the Hebrew people and how uh, it helps us understand the story of the Bible as we know it. And, and so as we saw last week in Genesis, God shows up in the beginning as the creator but very quickly, as the text of Genesis goes on, God takes off his creator hat and God becomes God the founder. God begins founding a nation with the purpose of bringing redemption into the world through this group of people. And God the founder chooses to begin with a man who has no family, who has no children, and no land or anything like that. He starts with a man named Abraham. And God shows up to Abraham, and through Abraham, God says he's going to birth a nation with this international, multi-generational purpose and influence. It was a nation that eventually uh, would be a blessing to everyone. Uh, God shows up to Abraham, he says, I'm going to bless you, but I'm blessing you with the intent that you'll become a blessing to the entire world along the way. And eventually that nation is formed through Abraham. He starts to have children, and I won't get into all the details of the story, uh, but eventually that nation grows and they become enslaved in Egypt. Uh, they eventually would become enslaved by the superpower, by Pharaoh, who considered himself related to the gods. He viewed himself as equal to the gods, and uh, he enslaved these people. He was terrible to the Hebrew people. He turned them, like I said, into slaves, and, and was just ruthless towards them. And then, at the right time, the story continues to move forward because God sends his servant Moses onto the scene. And, and Moses grows up. He ends up in Pharaoh's court. It's a really exciting story. We talk about it a lot of times around Easter because of Passover, and if you've ever seen like Charlton Heston as Moses, that's the story that I'm talking about. But Moses goes to Pharaoh, and he says, hey, you have to let my people go. You have to let God's people go. And he spoke on behalf of God. And in this story, Yahweh, right, the God of the Hebrew people, he speaks to Pharaoh in the only terms that Pharaoh could understand, violence and power. And so Yahweh brings these plagues, and, and he punishes the people of Egypt. And at the end of this epic story, Yahweh frees his people, and they leave Egypt. And the text tells us that they actually leave Egypt wealthy, that the Egyptians were, like, thrilled to see them go because they plundered all their stuff, and they took off along the way. And then Moses leads the people to a mountain known as Mount Sinai. And it's at that mountain that God establishes a covenant or basically a contract. He establishes the terms of his relationship with this new nation, with this newly freed group of people. And so we can call that the Sinai Covenant. He says to these ancient Hebrews, hey, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people, and you are going to be separate from all the surrounding nations. You are going to be distinct from the surrounding nations because I have this specific plan for you, because through you, through my people, we are going to bless the entire world. That was God's intention, again, from the very start. And so he says to the people, uh, here are the rules, here are the stipulations, here's uh, the laws, or, or basically the contract, here's the covenant that I'm going to have with you and what it means for you to be my people. And he said to the people, I'm going to give you your own land, I'm going to give you your own place, and when you get to this land, if you obey me, then I'm going to prosper you. Things are going to go well for you as a nation. But if you disobey me, for the sake of a world that's watching, I'm going to punish you. And so he lays out the terms, and basically God says to this group of people, hey, if you take on the customs and the practices and the religions of the surrounding nations, if you embrace the morality of the surrounding nations, if you start practicing 
polytheism, right? Like worshiping multiple gods like all the other nations do. If you embrace their way of being, then I'm going to give you to the surrounding nations. And once you get a good dose of that, and then you come back and you repent, I'll bring you back into the land. And so essentially God lays out the terms of what this is going to look like. And it was a conditional relationship in the sense that God said he would bless them if they obeyed him, but it was unconditional in the sense that God never gave up on his purpose and his plan through this group of people. God says that they will always be his chosen people with a specific agenda in mind. And all of this was laid out on Mount Sinai when Moses came down, not just with 10 commandments, but with 613 commandments explaining what it looked like for the Hebrew people to follow Yahweh well. You guys tracking with me so far? I know that's a lot of history. It's a holiday weekend. Thanks for being here. Uh, I want to take a second, and I want to talk about those commandments for just a second, because this is one of those things that critics and skeptics for generations have had unrelenting criticism towards. When you look at some of the rules and some of the regulations, some of the laws that are laid out in the Sinai Covenant, recorded in the Old Testament in books like Numbers and Deuteronomy uh, and Leviticus, sometimes people look at these and they think that these restrictions show God's character as being harsh and God is being kind of arbitrary, like he just holds things back from people, or maybe even that God isn't really good because of how archaic or outdated these laws appear to be in our modern context. In fact, uh, there's an author, a thinker, a guy who considered himself a part of the movement known as the New Atheists. His name's Richard Dawkins. He wrote a book called The God Delusion uh, around the start of the 2000s, and uh, this is a little bit harsh what he says, so buckle up if you're sensitive to such things. But here's how he described Judaism, essentially looking at the Hebrew scriptures. He said, Judaism was originally a tribal cult of a single, fiercely unpleasant God, morbidly obsessed with sexual restrictions and with the smell of charred flesh. And on and on he goes about how awful and angry the Hebrew God appears to be in the text. And here's the thing. I don't think it's a bad thing for us to engage with people who disagree with us. I I don't think it's a bad thing. Like, if you want to check out the God delusion, I don't think it's a bad thing to read and to consider those other points. But I do think that Richard Dawkins is wrong in what he portrays the God of the Hebrew scriptures like. And and let me show you what I mean. Because, for example, uh, in Leviticus chapter 18, it's a a section of the Bible, it's a section of the Hebrew scripture, uh, where the majority of the laws and the restrictions are actually laid out and found. Uh, Leviticus is is that section, like if you've ever said, hey, I'm going to read the Bible from front to back, Leviticus is one of those chapters you get to where you're like, yeah. I don't know, right? Like, what happened to all the fun, exciting story stuff? Because you get the numbers, and it's like, there's laws, and there's Leviticus, then you're at Deuteronomy, and you're like, there's laws again, but I thought we already covered that. And so this is where you begin to stall out. But Leviticus chapter 18 specifically uh, contains approximately 19 sexual prohibitions that God commands his people not to do. This was the section of the Bible that middle school Eric loved to pull up on the school bus because he thought it was funny and to snicker at and laugh about. But uh, anyway... These 19 different behaviors that God outlaws, if we read them through a modern lens, sometimes you can say, look at how restrictive this God is. Right? Look, at, look at this God who's like getting all involved in our personal business and telling us what we can do or can't do. But something that you need to know to understand what God was up to is that all 19 of these behaviors that God speaks to were behaviors that were practiced in ancient Egypt and practiced in ancient Canaan, in the lands surrounding God's people. And God wanted his people to be different. And something else that's worth noting 
is that today, like right now today, in the developed nations of our world, the, the developed nations and the nations that are developing in the world, 17 of the 19 behaviors that are prohibited in Leviticus are illegal or frowned upon in those communities today as well. 17 of those 19 restrictions are considered illegal. And so what that tells us is that the Hebrew people weren't out of touch, they weren't outdated, they weren't antiquated, but rather they were remarkably ahead of their time. They were remarkably ahead of their time to outlaw these things. It would take centuries for some of the surrounding civilizations to finally mature to the point where they realized that these prohibitions, these sexual prohibitions that God had given to the nation of Israel were actually the way to go all along. And, and if you don't believe me yet, let me show you a quick example. In Leviticus uh, chapter 18, verse 6, it, it says this, no one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. Seems like common sense to us, right? We live far enough north, like it makes sense. It seems reasonable. <laughs> but when, uh, when Jesus showed up on the scene, okay, like get this, these laws were introduced to Moses on Mount Sinai. And then when Jesus shows up 1,500 years later, the Egyptian monarchy was still practicing marrying their siblings to one another. 1,500 years after God had offered that prohibition uh, to God's people at Mount Sinai. And so the point is you can't just look at these ancient prohibitions and think, oh my gosh, those are so antiquated. Oh my gosh, God is so out of touch. But rather, we have to understand that in its context, when these laws were rolled out, the Sinai covenant was a moral and a civil code that when it's understood is actually brilliant. It, it was expansive, it was revolutionary in ancient history. And, and what God was doing in that moment is God, like a good father, was accommodating to his people's capacity. That Eden is my daughter and she's four years old right now. And, and so when I talk to her, it's different even than like I'm talking to you right now. Right? I, I kind of try and scale things down to, to meet her at her level and she blows me away at how smart she is, but that's a different story for a different day. But, but I still try and like get things on her level. In fact, I missed this the other day because I'm a big Marvel fan and at night I was talking to her, we were reading stories and then eventually our conversation drifted to the multiverse theory and I started trying to explain multiverse theory to a four-year-old. Some of you are like, what's multiverse theory? Good for you, don't get into it. But I was talking to her about this like huge theory about how the world works, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, not clicking, right? She's nodding, but she's like, okay, Dada. And Ashley's shaking her head at me because I'm ridiculous. That's because like, I've got to talk to her in a way that she understands. Uh, or like, for example, if a five-year-old asks you, hey, where do babies come from? You will answer that question differently than if a 15-year-old asks you, where do babies come from? And you'll answer that differently than if a med student asks you, where do babies come from? And nobody's lying along the way, right? We're just accommodating each person's capacity in the moment. And that's essentially how God showed up in human history. He was meeting people where they were at. He was meeting them in the moment. And for us, looking back, it may seem unsophisticated or barbaric, but in the moment, it was superior to every other civil or religious law of the surrounding nations. And before I get off this point, it's really important to understand that the protections that were afforded to the most vulnerable people were nothing short of revolutionary in the ancient world. I mean, it sounds crazy and offensive for us to even acknowledge today, but in this moment, the Sinai contract or covenant was one of the first time that women were given rights and dignity that the Hebrew people believed that everyone was made in the image of God, and so that meant that everybody had dignity, that women and servants and foreigners and children, they all fared 
better under Hebrew law and under Hebrew society than they did in their counterparts surrounding them. And the reason, again, is because the Hebrew people believed that men and women and children and everyone was made in the image of God and that everyone was born with inherent dignity. And so they didn't worship creation, but rather they believed that humans were the pinnacle of creation, that they carried dignity and worth, and that shaped the way that they treated one another. So back to our storyline. Okay, the Sinai covenant happens, and then the people, against God's better wishes, uh, end up getting themselves a king. In fact, they get a whole line of kings, and essentially, at first, God didn't want Israel to have a king because God wanted to be their king. God established the covenant at Sinai, and he said, hey, I want to rule through these laws and through judges who enforce those laws, and I want to directly relate with you. But Israel, God's people, were looking around at the surrounding nations, and they're like, yeah, but they all have kings. Like, we want to have a king. We want to be cool, and we want to be important. And eventually, God gives in, and he says, okay, you can have a king. And most of Israel's kings were disasters because they were people who were holding all of the power. And when somebody holds all the cards and has all the power, typically bad things happen. They would do things like raise taxes and people tend to not like taxes, right? They would raise armies, and armies are expensive. Many of them had multiple wives, and things get complicated when you have multiple wives, or so I've heard. And so Israel, uh, instead of looking up at God for their cue, they constantly looked around, and eventually they ended up uh, with this king, but that wasn't enough for them. So they kept going, and they kept wanting to have what other people had, and they realized that the other nations also had a temple, And so eventually God gives them a temple. But again, God didn't initially want them to have a temple. In fact, uh, God says he's a mobile God, that he's everywhere. God had, this is a sidebar, but God had a tabernacle initially rather than a temple. And what's important to know is that that was like a portable temple. It moved around because God was constantly on the move and constantly expanding. But eventually they got themselves a temple. But their temple was even different than the surrounding nation's temple. It, It wasn't necessarily different in the way that it looked, Uh, In fact, if you went into it, it had a lot of the same features, but the Jewish temple didn't have one thing that every other ancient temple had, and that thing was an image of the God for whom the temple was built. See, ancient temples, uh, they typically had this area that was kind of like the God vault, where like God was kept. It was the sacred space deep inside of the temple, and as a part of it, in that vault, uh, in ancient temples, there would be like a statue or an image or something that represented the God for whom the temple was built. But the Jewish temple, it had everything else that, that an ancient temple would have. In fact, it even had that kind of God vault space. They called it the holiest of holies. But in the holy of holies, There was no image of God. There was no image of Yahweh because one of the big 10 commandments is that you can't create any image of me because I'm Yahweh and I'm the one and only God and I can't be contained in or described by or narrowed down or reduced to a single image. And he was, again, reinforcing, like, by the way, I don't live in this house. Like, I'm a mobile God. I go where I want to go. So, like, don't, if you don't remember that, just ask Pharaoh, right? Remember the story earlier? God does what God wants to. And so anyway, the people wanted a temple, and and so uh, God gave them a temple, and they built it, and they had the God vault or that sacred space, but in that space, there was no image of Yahweh because Yahweh said, you'll have no image of me. And there's a really interesting moment in uh, human history uh, around the year 63 BC when Pompey shows up, And what happened is Rome annexed all of Judea and Galilee into the Roman Empire. And when Pompey got there, he was so fascinated to learn about the Jewish God, 
to see this God that so many people had talked about as the one true God, this God who wouldn't join the pantheon of the other Roman gods, he was fascinated to see what he was like. And so basically, he showed up at the Jewish temple. He pushed the priest aside. He goes through the curtain into the Holy of Holies. And when he gets there, he just finds some dishes and some gold. There's no image of Yahweh because, again, Yahweh commanded that. And so the story goes that he was disgusted and he left it all there and he walked away because he's like, what kind of God is this that he doesn't even have an image? But again, back to our storyline. Abraham, Moses, the Sinai covenant, the kings, the temple all continue to move the story forward. But because the kings were constantly misbehaving, God would often send people known as prophets to confront them and to challenge them along the way. He, they would warn them, and they would correct the prophets. And as you may know, or, or I would say as you should know, that these prophets, when they show up in the story, when they showed up on the scene in, in the life of God's people, the nation of Israel, every single one of these prophets is addressing a specific historical context. A every single one of these prophets is addressing something that's going on within the people, particularly related to one of the kings. But occasionally, a prophet would show up and they would make a statement that would point ahead from their current time, that would point to, to a future day where God would do something through the nation for all of the nations. And there's a fascinating illustration of this uh, that's found in uh, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah wrote 600 years before the time of Jesus, and he often talked about the current events of his day, but there's this account where he had this kind of vision or he foresaw this mysterious suffering servant whose suffering would benefit the nation and ultimately benefit the world. And the details of this suffering servant, as Isaiah lays it out, would conflict with the temple system that the Jewish people currently practice. It would conflict with the entire system and structure of their worship. And I'm going to read you a few verses from Isaiah 53. It says this, that he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain which the original audience would wonder, who is? Who's he talking about here? He says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And again, the original audience would be like, what, what is he talking about? A person was punished for someone else's iniquities? Uh, that's not how the system works. Like, that's what we have lambs and goats and sheep for. That, that doesn't happen to people. But Isaiah goes on. He says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, for he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Again, this would shatter their worldview, that a person would be punished for the sins of the nation and that he would be buried along with the wicked, along with the rich, just like everybody else. It doesn't make sense. And he says this, that after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. So there's this hopeful turn at the end as well. And the reason that this is important is because over and over and over again, throughout the story of the people of Israel, they are constantly reminded that they are on a divine mission, and essentially that they are a divine means to an end. And that's not a bad thing. Sometimes when we say somebody's just a means to an end, it seems offensive. But being a means to an end is the only thing that makes things meaningful, right? Like if you want to have a meaningful life, you need to become a means to an end that's something bigger than you. And so the story arc of God's people 
It is this divine means to an end. And here is the point today. Maybe you're like, where's the story of the Bible and all this? As it relates to the Hebrew scriptures, here is the point as we try and understand the context. It's that God wades into the fray and the play, and he plays by the rules of the kingdoms of this world in order to usher in a kingdom that is not of this world. Let me say that again. The point that we can gather from the Hebrew scriptures as we read it is that God enters into the fray of this world and he chooses to play by the rules of the kingdoms of this world in order to ultimately usher in a kingdom that is not of this world, that has different values. And so when we go to the story of the Old Testament, we see some of the ouchy, uncomfortable things, and we try and sand off the rough edges, we miss the point of the story. Because the point of the story is that God met people exactly where they were, and he constantly moved them forward. And when we miss it, we miss the mess that God waded into in order to move the story of redemption forward until eventually it got to the bitter and the bloody crucify him, crucify him. See, our Old Testament, as we know it, it is the saga of an ancient people who are struggling to survive in a world where food was scarce and enemies were real and death was only a minor infection away. It is a real story found in real human history. And yet, in spite of all of that, those people clung to Yahweh and he, in turn, clung to his nation, careful to not override their freedom with his presence. And so the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, it is a gritty and it is a powerful ancient history with a divine purpose. And that purpose was announced by God to Abraham and then fulfilled 2,200 years later when a Jewish carpenter discovered that his fiance was pregnant. Or the Apostle Paul said it best in his letter to the church in Galatia when he says, but... When the time, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. The set time was when everything had happened that needed to happen, when the man Abraham had the family that grew into the nation, and the law all along the way played the role of tutor to the people until the lawgiver himself arrived on the scene. And so, the story of the Old Testament should cause all of us, right here in this moment, right, 2022 people trying to follow Jesus, it should cause all of us to drop to our knees in gratitude when we understand that we don't have to tidy it up, that it was never meant to be a spiritual guidebook where we pull our laws and our instructions from, but rather, it is the story of God preparing the world for his Savior. It is the backstory to the story of Jesus. And by the second century, the church incorporated the Hebrew Bible into Christian worship, and they gave it a new name. Rather than calling it the Hebrew Scriptures or the Law and the Prophets, they started to call it the Old Covenant. And then several years later, that name eventually changed again to become the Old Testament. And the reason it was called old is because Christians believed that the covenant that God established with Israel had been replaced with a new covenant for everyone. And still yet, at this moment, there is no Bible. Okay, there were were Hebrew texts. There were various accounts of Jesus' life. There was some correspondence between a famous church planter and his Gentile congregations. And so don't miss next week as we wrap things up and the Bible for grown-ups. Let me pray for you. God, 
it is remarkable when we pause and we look at your movement throughout human history. I know that's not something that's on our minds every day. I mean, we get busy, we get distracted, and uh, it can be so easy to turn the Old Testament, to turn this account into your movement throughout human history, into something that it's not. And and so, God, I just pray for us, maybe even uh, if some of what we talked about today feels disruptive, uh, God, give us ears and and eyes to see and to hear uh, what you have to say to us. Help us to understand that this old covenant has actually been replaced by something new and by something better, and that when we understand the backstory, it helps us find our place in your story right now. So God, I pray for my friends who are here today. Uh, God, may they have an incredible holiday weekend getting some rest, and may they be struck by the remarkable truth that you've continued to move and continue to meet us exactly where we are. God, may you do so in our lives this week as we move forward together. We pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you live in or near the Peru, Indiana area, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend gatherings. To find directions, service times, and information about our environments for kids, visit us at storyperu.com.